just read that together, Deuteronomy 6, and the second commandment, which flows from the first, which is found in Leviticus 19, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Couldn't that suffice? Just the two commandments. Well, the question would be asked, how do I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And how do I love my neighbor as myself? That's what the ten words teach us. They're teaching us how to love, uh, as Paul prayed for the Philippians, that your love might abound more and more. And we just sang, Lord, how can I love you more and more? In knowledge and in all judgment. Well, the knowledge of how to love is found in the Ten Commandments, which are summaries of the whole of God's law. So we love the Lord by having Him as our God. Commandment number one. And so on. The first four commandments, how do we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul? First of all, how do we love the Lord? And then the last six, man's relationship with man, how to love the Lord or how to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, here we go and and I ask your prayers and that God would help us prayerfully to listen as He would help me prayerfully to teach. What is the first commandment? Well, look at Exodus chapter 20. Read the first three verses. And God spake all these words, the ten words in particular, the Decalogue, prefacing them by, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so, what he says to follow is, therefore, if I'm your Redeemer as well as your Creator, then this is what I want you to do as my creature and as my redeemed one. This is a treaty. And God has the right to have it unilateral. He certainly will keep His end of the treaty. This is, this is uh, the, uh, the vows that we are to make to the Lord. The first vow, we will have no other gods before Him. That's the first commandment. Oh, there are religions that combine uh, one and two, or two and three, or double number ten. There are different ways in which they've been enumerated. But we believe that this is the first commandment: Thou shalt not make unto thee any, or I'm sorry, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And you know it's repeated. In Deuteronomy chapter five, Deuteronomy chapter five. Let's see if it's any different. In Deuteronomy five, verse seven. Deuteronomy five seven. You know the book of Deuteronomy means second law, second giving of the law. Is it any different in verse seven than Exodus twenty verse three? Thou shalt have none other gods before me. There is one difference. Do you notice that? It's no in Exodus. It's none in Deuteronomy. But there is no difference in the Hebrew. I have no idea why they wrote none in Deuteronomy or why didn't they write none in Exodus. I can't answer that question. But it's the same exact words. Actually, seven Hebrew words, though we have nine English words. 
Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. If you would look at the ten words, the, uh, the shortest are numbers six, seven, and eight. They're two Hebrew words each. The longest is the one that's least esteemed today. It's the fourth commandment about the Lord's Day, about the Sabbath day. This is kind of in the middle, seven Hebrew words. But what does this commandment have to do with loving the Lord? What, what is the content? What is the meaning? Well, it's obviously saying that the Lord has to have the place of our supreme affection. He is commanding exclusive worship. And there are no exemptions. Not even if you're an unbeliever. Not if you're a Muslim or an atheist. No exemptions. Even if you're dying and even if you you only have a few moments to live and could you at least have the soothing comfort of calling upon any God you want if you're going to die a few moments from, uh, from now? You know that's in the Bible. Second Kings chapter 1, there was a king named Ahaziah who fell out of a window. And he was so injured that it was a fatal injury unless God came to his rescue. And instead of calling upon the God of Israel and Judah, he asked his lackeys to go about 30 miles away and consult Baal of the uh, Philistines. And you know, how many... Religious leaders today would say, give this guy a break. He's on his deathbed. Let him be able to appeal to anyone he wants to. Doesn't he have a, he's a king. And yet, what does the Lord say? He interrupts, he intercepts those lackeys and he says, you go tell the king, is there not a God in Israel that you can consult? That you would go all the way to the Philistines? Tell him he's going to die on his bed. He didn't even give Ahaziah a break. On his deathbed, people would say, "Isn't that not cruel?" Oh, how how people would be up in arms today about the bigotry of God, and yet God is serious about exclusive worship. He doesn't even give a person a break on his deathbed. So, so unique is the Lord, our God. Obviously, it's given in a prohibition form. You know, eight of the commandments are given as thou shalt not. Two are given in the precept form. God is forbidding any personal possession or profession of other gods. Now, what does it mean, thou shalt have no other gods before me? The word before can have the meaning of above and can have the, the meaning of another or addition. The Lord is not saying you can have a hierarchy of gods and I have to be at the top. In other words, He does not mean by thou shalt have no other gods before Me that you can have Baal and Marduk. And there are hosts of gods that are revealed in the Bible. The sun god, the moon god, 
or whatever God a man, he's not saying, I have to be at the top and you can have many below me. It's not what he's saying. And that, well, by the way, the heathen gods had no problem with that. They didn't demand exclusivity. They have prayers that heathen have made to their gods. And one prayer, for instance, is to the gods of the night. And so the gods of the night have no problem with people praying to the gods of the day. So why did the people pray for the, to the gods of the night at night? Because the gods of the day had punched out. They were off duty now because it got dark, you see. But the gods of the sky didn't mind you praying to the gods of the valley or the mountains because they all had their spheres. But like Jonah said, the Lord is the God of the heavens and the seas and the earth. He's the God of every realm. And therefore the Lord says, no, I don't want you to have a hierarchy of gods. He means no additional God whatsoever. And of course, we all know that it's not just things that can become idols. Ourselves, we can be an idol to ourselves. Thinking more of ourselves than we think of God. A person, another person, a spouse, a child can be a God to us. And he's saying, I am the Lord your God. Notice he's talking to each individual, not necessarily to the nation. To each individual. Thou shalt thou, he says, not ye. So he talks to every single person. Not just to the Jew or the Gentile, but every person. You know, people say, well, I'm exempt. I'm an atheist or I'm a polytheist or I'm a... Uh, or I'm a knowest, or I'm an agnostic. He's talking to every individual. Thou shalt have no other God, no additional gods before me, besides me. And the Hebrew literally is, the word me is face. And it sounds, it sounds crass, but he's saying, I don't want any God in my face. Get them, off, get them away from my face. And you've probably seen this in, in, in uh, leaders or when a person is, is, is up in front of a judge and he's, he's giving him a, a judgment. He says, get this person out of the courtroom to start serving his sentence. Get him out of my face. And that's what the Lord's saying. He's saying every God that a person sets up is in his face because God is omnipresent. I mean, think about, if we bristle at that thought, think about your spouse, if some, some other man or woman comes between you and your spouse, it is in your face, and says, I want to love that person. Or whatever, some other a parent in front, between you and your child. Get that person out of my face. That's what the Lord is saying. He's so offended at anyone being loved, anything being loved above Him, worshipped, honored. Besides the fact that there are no other gods. It's like what Paul said, uh, 
And why does the Bible go out of its way to really take seriously idolatry if there are no idols? Paul says, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 8.6, point blank, there aren't any (laughs) other gods. We know not any. That's what the Lord says Himself. So why does the Bible take seriously something that can't happen? In other words, there are no literal gods besides the Lord. I am the Lord and there is none else. There are none before me and after me, he says in Isaiah, for instance. Several verses. Why does the Bible become so serious about that? Because behind idols is demonism. It's the devil that sets up idols. He wants to be in God's faith. He wants to frustrate the Lord. And you read, for instance, in Corinthians and other places that behind idols is demonism. The devil sets up an idol. Any idol that comes between you and the Lord, he wants to set it up. And the Bible, of course, mentions mammon, money. Materialism is an idol. You cannot serve God and mammon. It says in that text that Mammon becomes a god. And you remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and all excited about serving the Lord and about uh, the Lord Jesus complimenting his his religiosity, his devotion to God. What good thing may I do to inquire to inherit eternal life? He was hoping that Jesus would compliment him and say, keep keep, up. Keep being kind to your neighbor. Keep helping the old lady across the street. Those are good things. But what did Jesus do? He said, now this is just to him. He doesn't mean to say this to every person. But where it applies, he'll say it again. Go sell all that you have and, and give to the poor and come follow me. And what, it ha- what happened? Oh, Lord, I-, I love You with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. These riches mean nothing to me here. The Bible says because He had such great possessions that He went away sorrowful. What did Jesus do? That man was thinking Jesus was going to touch upon his, the commandments to his neighbor. What Jesus did, He went right underneath all of them, right to the first commandment. Your riches, your materialism is your God. So get rid of your God and come follow me. No, I love my God. Get your God out of my face. You know, there are people that will say, well, the God of the New Testament is nicer. Well, I just read you. Is He nicer than the Old Testament? Jesus said things like this, and it sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? If you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. That alone tells me He's God, isn't it? He's saying, I must have your supreme affection. He's saying, I am God, the Son. And there are counterfeit gods. And then man invents gods. As as John Calvin said, that our hearts are often idol factories. And so God is wise to say, Thou shalt have no other gods in addition to Me. Get them away from Me. Get them out of My face. It's the same word, by the way, used in verse 20 of Exodus 20. That His fear may be before your faces. In other words, put Me before your face. 
put my reverence before your face and keep it there that my fear may be before your faces. And what he's saying is, don't bring any gods before my face. I want you. I want nothing between you and me. In other words, God is offended. This is an offended God. A God is offended if he's not alone. The Lord alone. And your marriage is, for instance, a, a testimony of that. One, marriage is, is, is monogamous. And the devil wants you to have many partners. The devil wants you to be unfaithful. It's, it's not kosher today. It's not politically correct. It's countercultural to be loyal to one. The devil wants to fly in the face of God's creation. But it's a prohibition and we need it, don't we, in a fallen world. You know, before Adam sinned, Probably all the Ten Commandments were in a precept form to his mind, to his heart. The precept is, Thou shalt have me as your God. We sang the song, O worship the King. That's the precept of the first commandment. The precept, there are always precepts. There's cor- to every precept, there's a corresponding prohibition. To every cor- prohibition, there's a corresponding precept. And the precept in the Bible, for instance, a verse that's, a, that's corresponding to the prohibition of the first commandment is, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Remember how, when Jesus quoted that? The devil, remember, said, If you fall down and worship Me, I'll give you all this. So in other words, add Me to your worship. Equate Me with the Lord. And Jesus rebuked him and said, The Bible says, Thus saith the Bible, right? Scripture says, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. Not as the top of a hierarchy, but with nothing below and nothing above. Indeed, the Lord is is commanding exclusive, exclusive worship. Do we bristle at that? Again, so often when God says no, we say yes. And when He says yes, we say no. He has a right, doesn't He? he he's delivered us from the land of Egypt, from the slavery of sin. And in a real sense, we become different slaves. We were slaves of Pharaoh. We were slaves of sin. And now we become enslaved to God. And that's okay. But yet He calls us His children, His friends. But nonetheless, we serve Him. We're bought by the Lord's blood. We've been purchased from the slave market of sin, but we've been now added to the slave market of salvation. And wouldn't you agree, if I can be last in the kingdom, in just the far corner, okay, I'm in the kingdom. Lord, thank You for including me. Just like the thief on the cross. Remember me. Don't forget me. If I'm in the corner, the last one in, please let me be in. And Jesus said, no, you'll be with me in paradise. And someone said to uh, Whitfield, you think Wesley, you think you'll see Wesley in heaven? And he said, no, I don't think so. He'll be so close to the Lord, I won't be able to see him. 
The doctrine certainly is monotheism, but Trinitarianism is not taught here, but it's not forbidden or eliminated here. For in 1 Corinthians 8, the same passage where Paul talks about there being one God, he says there's one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we in Him. The same thing said of the Father. And if you see in 1 Peter 1, 2, this is one text that includes all three persons. They're all equal in power and glory. Just read it to you. 1 Peter 1, 2. We're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. All three persons. But you see there, it's usually it's one, two, three, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now it's Father, Spirit, and Son. And you find passages where the numbers are, are different. You have the Father sometimes last. But mostly the order is Father, Son, and Spirit. But the point is that there are three persons in one God. There are people, the, the Muslims and the Jews, accuse you and me of polytheism. You have three gods. We have one. And the Bible says, Thou shalt have no other gods but Him. You guys are breaking the first commandment, you Christians. No, sir. The Bible teaches three persons, one God. One God. But three persons in the, in the, the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit. The doctrine, though, is forbidding so many things. Forbidding polytheism. It forbids acknowledgement of other gods in addition. Allah and so on. Atheism is forbidden in the first commandment. You say, well, it just says thou shalt have no other gods before me. I don't have any god. I'm an atheist. But you don't have him. Again, the corresponding precept is commanded as well as the the prohibition. When the Lord says, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me, He means you must worship Me alone. You must have Me as your God. And an atheist, an agnostic, the Lord is clear. I am the only God. You can't say at the end of the day, I don't know if there's a God. I've given the Bible in so many languages. But egotism is forbidden. Pride as I in the middle, doesn't it? And practical polytheism. You cannot serve God and mammon. So the question is, do we possess possessions or do possessions possess us? But anything. I was talking about a minister in Sunday school earlier today and it sounds laughable, but to him it wasn't. He had a great cow that produced milk and wasn't getting sick in days when cows were getting sick and dying. But the man would go to prayer and think of his cow. He just, every time he went to prayer, or when he tried to do something, the cow was on his mind all day long. The cow! I mean, you think, how in the world does a cow occupy your mind? And so he put it up for sale. (laughs) And some guy said, you know, what's wrong with this cow? And he said, why are you selling? He said, it's perfectly, a perfectly good cow. Produces great milk consistently. No disease. And you know, I'm suspicious of you. He said, I'm telling you the truth. I fear God. 
This cow is a perfect cow. Well, why are you selling it then? Because it follows me into the pulpit. <laughs> is there anything that follows us into the church? Anything that's, that's on our minds in the pew? A cow? A money market? Anything. Does it follow us? And I'm not saying we need to sell it. But we need to get it out of God's face. A person, a thing, a dollar bill, a sport. Brother and sister, God's serious. And He ought to. He, he has the right to be. If you made something, say a toy soldier, and you, you know, and he walked away from you, or instead of coming over to you, you know, he went over to his toy soldier is, or whatever, and just did whatever it wanted to do. And I made you, but I don't care. I love this thing more than you. I mean, think about this has happened in our lives at times, hasn't it? Where there's been unfaithfulness, and God is. Jealous. You say, how can you be jealous of something that doesn't exist? But it really does exist if we're loving it. It does exist because our hearts are cold toward Him. Do you like anybody's heart that's cold toward you that you know should love you? Have you ever experienced coldness? It hurts, doesn't it? You think God doesn't have feelings? The God who made us? Don't we care about what He feels and what He desires? And if He says this and we want to do something else, we're setting ourselves up as our God. We don't need you. It, is really, it really is clear, isn't it? And think of the goodness of God to give us clarity in His commandments. There's no, there's no uh, fog in that commandment, thou shalt have no other God. That's God's love. It's His kindness. Have you ever tried to read directions to something? And you think, you know, what in the world? Who, 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 who wrote these directions? Or you read people's lists of things. How, what, what do they mean by that? This is, tr- this is clear doctrine. This is saying God is intolerant of tolerance. And that's kind of cultural. We ought to be tolerant of anything, shouldn't we? But God is intolerant. You say it's authoritarian. It is. It's bold. He's jolting us by these commandments. Commandments jolt us, don't they? And we also put, we bristle at them, don't we? I have the advantage in the bus. I've got there are about seven bus rules, and one of these days they're going to pull that down. You know what they used to have in the driver's room? No, no, no swearing and profanity. Guess what was pulled down from the from the billboard of, or the board of the in the driver's room? Now they can swear and take the Lord's name in vain if they want. But on the bus, you still have no profanity. I've got the school district on on my side. If as I continue to ask the children not to take the Lord's name in vain, right there, I should take a picture of that that placard and the bus number. And it wasn't bus 100 and well, when I started it was 222. Now we're up, to, I'm driving 353. So you can see how old I am and how many years I've driven. But I should take a picture of that. But one of these days, I'm not going to find it on the new buses. 
But God was not going to let... You can rip down the Ten Commandments and just like with Jeremiah when he told Baruch, print it again and again and again and again. Voltaire said, no more Bibles. But now the house that he lived in is a Bible printing press. You can rip it down from the wall, but it won't be ripped down from, from, from eternal walls, from heaven's walls or hell's walls. And it ought to be on our walls. We read together, these things should be posted. But did you notice it's not just on our doors? Did you notice on your gates? That's not talking about the gate outside your front door. That's talking about civil gates. Our civil authorities ought to have the Decalogue, and some of our buildings do, and they haven't chiseled them out yet. Some of our buildings, I, don't, I can't name them. I, if we Google them, we can, we can see where the Ten Commandments are on the walls in Albany or in, in uh, Buffalo or in Washington. But we need to have it on our walls in our homes. They ought to be posted. And God says that, doesn't He? God is intolerant. In a, in a fallen world, man is wanting to be tolerant of everything. You have your God, I have my God. Let's dwell together. But man needs these warning signs. We need the sign dead end, don't we? Or riptides, beware, or keep off the grass, or this is a one-way street, or beware of a dog. The Lord is saying, beware of idolatry. It'll damn you. Or believer, it'll zap your, 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 your devotion. Or at the end of the day, the, the, the best preventative is, it hurts your God. It's, a, it's disobedient to your God. You know, as I, as I argue with the devil and with my flesh so often about why I shouldn't do this or why I should do that. So often it's, it's, it, it can be carnal because it's inconvenient or you know, I profit better. If, but I have started to say, wait a minute, at the end of the day, Lord, it's, it's disobedience to You. It's my lack of love toward You that I disobey. That's got to be my main motivation. It's keeping me from loving the Lord and honoring Him. That is the preventative that's going to help us day after day. It's not whether or not it saves my face or it helps my life or it improves my golf game. Like someone said, I'll go to church if it improves my golf game. It's At the end of the day, it's, it's love for the Lord. That's the key. Isn't it? And the corresponding precept again is is supreme love for the Lord. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And brother and sister, this is what we read. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And that's hard sometimes. Other translations, the Lord is one. But this perhaps catches the idea. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Jehovah alone. That's the idea. It's saying there are no other gods. But to us there is but one God, Paul says. Malachi says, Hath not one God created us? And Ephesians says there's one Lord and one God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and soul and mind and strength. As Jesus would say to Peter, Lovest thou me more than these? In other words, what is he saying? You're not, you and I are not just to be pro-God. 
mildly God-centered. Do you know what he's saying? You are to love me passionately. You are to love me fervently, intensely, vigorously, such that it would offend people if you love me like you ought to. And you and I are, we have to confess, I am mildly toward God. He is saying, you love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the word strength means you're to love me exceedingly. You're to include your voice in loving me. Your mind, your heart. It's deep, a deep ocean. And I want us to see, I don't even know if I can finish this. This this one text that we read together is just so convicting and so deep. Look at me with, with me, please, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6. Some translations don't do it justly. Look at chapter 6. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with, with your whole being. Verse 5, right? Now notice the ands. All the way through this passage. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And... You will teach them, literally chisel them into your children. Verse 8, And you will bind them for a sign upon your hand and shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And not only in your house, but on the gates in your, in your capital cities. And thou, shalt, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be that when the Lord brings you into the land and you are filled with... You're filled with good things and water in your wells and 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 grapes on your in your vineyards and olives in your oliveyards and and so on. Don't forget the Lord. You see that? It's like a, He keeps coming at us. He keeps coming at us. It's kind of like when I was running in a field when I was a little kid. We were playing tag and. And the guy who was it was chasing me. And, and I was running with all my might. And I stepped in a bee's nest. And I just kept getting stung. The further I kept running and running, they kept going at me and at me and at me. I kept getting stung until it seems like I was in my backyard about two blocks away. I had about 20, 25 stings on my head. And my mother... I'm crying, screaming, and the rest is history, but she puts my head in hot water. I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but it sure hurt, but it did seem to help. I don't know if that's the right thing, but the point is they just kept coming and coming and coming and coming, and the Lord just keeps coming. In other words, you're to love me with your whole being, and, notice, and... You're to teach them, and they're to be in your heart. In other words, you're to memorize and meditate upon them. And, not just to keep it individually, make sure your children know, make sure your family, make sure your church, and post them on your walls, on your, on your, you know, for you, make sure they're, 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 they're posted in your, in your heart, in your mind, the frontlets in the other, in other ways, in other words. Then, in your house and on the gates in your city and keep going. And once you come into the land of Canaan, 
Don't forget the Lord. Keep it up. Keep it up. But you see what he's saying? It's, it's on and on and on. Your love is to be overboard. It's, it's not just, okay, I love the Lord with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. How is that evidenced? And how is that compounded and, and maintained and increased? By memorization of His Word. Meditation on His Word. Visualizing His Word on your, on your walls, on your doorposts, the gates of your city. Teaching your children. It's not something just for you. It's for your children, if God is that important. Having family worship. That is a way in which we obey God's Word and love them. May I say to us, if we don't have family worship, teaching our children day after day, we aren't loving the Lord? Absolutely. We aren't loving Him as He commands us. We're keeping it to ourselves if we don't have family worship and and aren't expressing passion for the Lord in our homes. The Lord is, is showing how deep this this precept, this command is. The ands just keep coming. And some of these new versions eliminate the ands. It's probably because they're trying to be stylistic. It doesn't look good. They just start with the, as if this is a new command. But the Lord is saying, keep, keep going, keep going, keep going. Don't ever think you've arrived. You can't love God too much. You can love God too little. It's rational, isn't it? You notice how the Lord says, Jehovah is is the only God. Therefore, you love Him with all your soul. You don't have to divvy out your love. If there were a hundred gods, we'd have to divvy out our love a hundred ways. But He says, "I've, I've shown you the simplicity. There are no other gods. I don't know of any, He says. He says, there are some passages in the Bible that are comical. They're meant to be. Like the one in Jeremiah where it says they, they chop a tree down and they use it for wood to heat themselves and to cook their food and they have a little bit left over and they make a God out of it and they bow down to it. It's meant to be sarcasm. God is, is invisible. He is real. He's eternal. He's saying there is no other God. It's rational. It's It's irrational to worship another God. It's damaging. There's no need to divvy out. No need to distribute our love. There's no other God that ever existed or shall be. And all the gods of the idols, or or the Bible says, we sang it today, didn't we? Psalm 96. The, The gods of the heathen are idols. They don't exist. No other God that is invented that can satisfy or save. It's countercultural. Have it your way is the, is the, are the words of Burger King. But the Lord says, have it my way. The world says, have, have as many as you like. Heathen gods weren't offended. They could only rule the day or rule the night or rule the rain or the sun the patron saints, the patron gods. They didn't care. But God cares. He demands His way. He holds the scepter. He's the one that's going to sit at the day of judgment. He has the army of angels that will gather his elect from, the elect from the four winds. 
He holds the weapon. He has the power to save. He has the power to destroy. It's like the robber that has a gun in front of you. Yes, sir. What do you want? The officer with the badge that pulls me over. Yes, sir. What would you like? Would you be merciful to me? Remember down in Virginia Beach, I was tired. My father had just passed away and we went to Virginia Beach to take a couple days. And I thought that the red light at 11 o'clock at night was a blinking red light. (laughs) So I turned left on red and the officer did a U-turn. And I said, as I pulled over, Tanya, put your hands on the dashboard (laughs) right away. And the guy pulls us over and how kind he was. He said, why are you down here? He said, just fix your light that's all out in the back and have an enjoyable time. <laughs> Thank you, officer. Who holds the sway? Who holds, who holds the weapon in his hand? Who holds the world in his hands? Who is the one that's going to be seated at the judgment day? The supernatural God. And after all, this is the first commandment. and Isn't that appropriate? The world would say, well, you know, if God had had the fifth commandment that's more, you know, family oriented, maybe the fifth should have been first. Or some other command that seems to be uh, more applicable today should have been first. But first is first. Until you get the right God right, you won't know how to worship Him and, and what flows in that worship toward man. He's not, the Ten Commandments are not meant to get man's carnal attention. It's necessarily first. If you get the first right, everything else will fall into place. But what we have to be careful about is that we don't teach the Ten Commandments as if they're a way in which we can be saved. It's because Israel was redeemed that they were given these ways of loving Him. We have to look at the Ten Commandments as not as a way of works righteousness, a way in which to obtain salvation. The Ten Commandments are ways to teach us how we should love the God who saved us. That's what it's teaching us. But nonetheless, they're owed to God by the heathen and the lost of the world. No one is exempt. None of His creatures, for they were written on the conscience of man from the very beginning. This is how we love the Lord and this is how we love one another. These are commandments that direct our love. And may I say, they are life-giving. They are life-giving for the believer. Proverbs 7, verse 2 says, Keep my commandments and live. Now that's not teaching work salvation. It's talking to the believer, my son. Christ kept them perfectly for Him and because of His righteousness we are saved. But the Christian keeps the Ten Commandments as a guide to doing God's will. We keep them as the the apple of our eye. God would say at the end of chapter 5, the very end of the chapter that has the Ten Commandments, Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear Me and keep all My commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Let's look at the the commandments in this way. One man gave an illustration of Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher in the 1800s, 
Notice that in his preacher's college, there was a, a young man that was very poor. And his clothes, the, only, the one set of clothes that he had were tattered. And he, under, he, under, and he did this many times, and never to be seen of men. But he, he gave the young man a command. I want you to take this piece of paper to this address, please, and hand it to the man. It was a dic- he dictated this to the young man. He gave him a command. And the man found the address was a tailor. And he went into the tailor's shop and handed him the note that said, please tailor a suit for this young man. And I want you to give it to him and put it on my bill. It was a command. But it had life blessing behind it. It's like the Lord says, these are not meant as a curse to us. They're meant to bless us. He knows that if we obey Him and love Him this way, it's for our good, His glory, and His honor. And one of the last verses of the Bible, remember our study in 1 John? What is, how does John end up his, his epistle? Kind of differently, strangely, He was teaching about loving the Lord in that epistle. Remember, how does he end? Little children, love the Lord with all your heart. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The prohibition form of the first commandment. And Jude in his epistle says, But ye, beloved, build up yourselves on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And that will help you to look unto Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, coming back, but then to have compassion toward others, making a difference. It's our love for the Lord that will flow into our love for people and our desire to see souls saved. How practical is this command for you and me? What a loving God to give us these ways in which we can love Him and love each other. 